Thank you, Ed, and uh, Arlen is also here with him. Uh, it's been a joy of ours. Those of you who have been around f- for some time here at East Parkway, you know it's been a joy of ours to uh, support the Gideon ministry for many, many years, and even to have uh, quite a few Gideons uh, in our own congregation over the years, and so uh, it's always a delight to have the Gideons come about once a year to give a brief presentation and just remind us of what God is doing through His Word, through the distribution of His Word by His people uh, in places all over the world. Good morning. Good morning. Good to see you this morning. Glad that you're here. Uh, Speaking of God's Word, will you take your Bible, please? And turn with me to the Gospel of John, chapter 19. Returning to our study through this Gospel, we are nearing the climax of this book. John spent the first 12 chapters describing the public ministry of Jesus Christ, namely by presenting some of the various encounters between Jesus and everyday people like you and me. Beginning in chapter 13, the focus shifted from the Lord's public ministry to one that was much more private as Jesus gathered His original 12 disciples one final time to share with them a final meal and some final words on the final night before the cross. From an upper room in Jerusalem to a garden in Gethsemane, uh, the narrative slowed considerably at this stage. You remember that whereas chapters 1 through 12 cover roughly three years, Chapters 13 through 17 span no more than a few hours. Beginning uh, in chapter 18, or chapter 18 begins with betrayal. Knowing where Jesus would be, Judas leads a detachment of armed guards to him who arrest him without cause, then take him by force to Jewish authorities. The Jews, of course, had been conspiring against Jesus for a while, and now that Judas had been exposed, they knew that the time to pounce was at hand. After interrogating him through the night, they charged Jesus with blasphemy and sent him bound early the next morning to Pontius Pilate, the Roman governor who presided at that time, and eventually sentenced Jesus to death. Meanwhile, Peter, perhaps Christ's closest friend, has three times denied knowing him, while the other disciples, except John, have all fled in fear. The whole account pictures Jesus approaching the cross alone, utterly abandoned, as John's gospel nears its zenith. John is deliberate here. 
wanting us to see this Jesus. To see His humanity as well as His deity. And so in considering the first five verses of chapter 19 this morning, I want us to behold this man, Jesus of Nazareth, because the humanity of Christ, the humanity of Christ, is essential to our worship of Christ. John chapter 19, verses 1 through 5. It says, Then Pilate took Jesus and flogged him, or had him flogged. And the soldiers twisted together a crown of thorns and put it on his head and arrayed him in a purple robe. And they came up to him saying, Hail, King of the Jews, and struck him with their hands. Pilate went out and said, To them, that is the crowd, the Jews, said to them, See, I am bringing him out to you that you may know that I find no guilt in him. So Jesus came out wearing the crown of thorns and the purple robe. And Pilate said to them, Behold the man. It's the word of the Lord. Let's pray together. Our God in heaven, we... Thank you for the time we have this morning. Thank you for the time we have together, for the time we have together in your word. And we come to some material that is familiar to many, perhaps new to some, but vital to all. And so we pray for the enabling of the Holy Spirit to see this Jesus with the eyes of our hearts. Spirit, we ask that you would descend upon our hearts so that, in fact, we may behold this man and believe and receive life in His name. And then live the whole of our lives, day by day, in the great assurance of His love and grace. So help us now, we pray, to the exaltation of His name. Amen. It's odd that Jesus is still with Pilate. It's odd. Odd because Pilate had already determined that he was not guilty. We read that in chapter 18, verse 38. Odd because Pilate's wife had likewise told him that Jesus was innocent. We read that in Matthew 27, verse 19. Odd because even King Herod, who wasn't particularly fond of Jesus, had told Pilate that he too found nothing in him deserving of death. We read that in Luke 
chapter 23, verse 15. So already, Pilate had ample reason to let Jesus go, and in fact, it seemed as if he wanted to let Jesus go. And yet, oddly, though he was the highest-ranking authority on the scene, humanly speaking, he had already begun capitulating to the cruel demands of the crowd. In very matter-of-fact fashion, verse 1 simply reads, Then Pilate took Jesus and flogged him. Evidently, he thought that if he were to punish Jesus and punish him severely, he could placate the Jews without further incident. Obviously, he was wrong. By this time, remember, Jesus had already been beaten earlier that morning when he appeared before the Jewish council, already bruised and swollen. Now he was to be flogged as well. And flogging, also called scourging, was really, it was just savage brutality that left its victim in shreds. The Roman scourge consisted of a wooden handle to which several leather strips were fastened, and into each strip were inserted small pieces of bone or metal spaced just a few inches apart down the length of the leather strip. The victim was stripped to the waist, tied face first to to a pole, then whipped methodically and mercilessly across the back, shoulder, arms, and even around the chest and abdomen as the leather strips wrapped around the torso. So severe was this mistreatment that many died from it, and many others went insane. Secular historians at the time describe the exposure of deep-seated veins and arteries, even intestines and internal organs. Basically, The victim was flayed to the bone. This is a sickening scene. Utterly gruesome. This isn't PG material. Or PG-13 or MA-14. This is R-rated at a minimum, but even that's insufficient. Movie disclaimers would say strong graphic violence or disturbing content. In fact, as I've shared with you before, I remember watching this scene in the theater while watching Passion of the Christ. And an eerie silence fell upon the room at this point. No one was comfortable. No one ate popcorn or candy. No one said a word. The only sounds were those of nervous fidgeting and gasps of disbelief. Until one woman seated just one row in front of mine, about five or six seats down, just couldn't take it anymore. Make it stop, she said. Her shrill, 
just piercing the silence as, as lash upon lash upon lash tore through. Jesus, make it stop. Make it stop. Make it stop, she continued repeatedly. And with that, I kid you not, tears began to flow throughout the room as people began sobbing uncontrollably. The combination of, of the, the visual of that scene with this woman's irrepressible wail haunted us all, and yet it didn't stop. At least not until Jesus had been ripped to shreds. But those who were there at the time, those inflicting the punishment, they weren't bothered at all. Verse 2 says the soldiers twisted together a crown of thorns and put it on his head and arrayed him in a purple robe. They came up to him saying, Hail, King of the Jews, and struck him with their hands. Imagine this with me. Jesus is obviously in a weakened state. His death, or or near death, his life, hanging by a thread. He's all alone. He's been betrayed, accosted, and arrested, forcibly dragged to the high priest, interrogated, beaten, accused, and condemned by the Jews. He's he's then passed on to Pilate because the Jews wanted him dead but didn't want to do the deed themselves. He's questioned by Pilate, found innocent, yet still flogged without mercy. He's barely holding on physically. He's barely holding on. He hasn't slept in over 24 hours. His body is in complete shock. He is suffering significant blood loss and dehydration. His flesh literally hangs in tatters. And yet, despite all of this, what do the soldiers do? They just pile on. They jam thorns into his head. They drape a makeshift robe around his shoulders and back, which no doubt clung to the open wounds like a towel wet with blood. They mock him. They slap him. They punch him. Mark records that they hit him with a reed and they spit on him. What do we call people like this? Just monsters. Their conscience is seared and their hearts hardened. They've stopped feeling. They don't even feel anymore. They're making sport of Jesus. And they actually enjoy watching him suffer. And not until they had their fill did they return him to Pilate. And what does Pilate do? He only adds to Christ's humiliation, still trying to appease the Jews. He marches Jesus before the crowd and declares again that he finds in him no guilt. What gall. And then Jesus, then putting Jesus on public display, he says to them all in verse 5, Behold, 
the man. What are we to make of this? I think we're st- I think we're to see obviously we're to behold the man Jesus but in beholding the man we're to see ourselves more clearly between Pilate who knowingly and blatantly refused what he knew to be right and the soldiers who knowingly and brazenly embrace the wrong, we peer into the abyss of our own human depravity. For is not the essence of sin the refusal of right and the glad acceptance of wrong? How many times, how many times have I knowingly and blatantly refused what I knew to be right? How many times have I knowingly and brazenly embraced what I knew to be wrong? And so this entire scene encapsulates our own wicked and sinful nature. And yet there stands Jesus, barely standing, I'm sure, bloodied and disfigured, absorbing and enduring it all. As Pilate traipses Jesus before the crowd and shouts, Behold the man, he draws their attention and ours to the humanity of Christ, to the person of Jesus of Nazareth. He doesn't know, nor does he care, nor does he accept Christ's deity that Jesus is God. All he knows is that Jesus is a man of flesh and blood whose flesh has been shredded and whose blood spills forth. Yet little does he know that by drawing our attention to Jesus, the man, he actually gives us more reason to worship Jesus as God. In Christian circles, we tend to prefer Christ's deity over his humanity. We love thinking of Jesus as God, praising Jesus as God, singing songs and hymns that exalt Jesus as God. We love those passages of Scripture, don't we, that magnificently portray Jesus as God, that talk about Him being God, that praise His preeminence over all things, that underscore His divine nature and eternal oneness with God. We love picturing Jesus in these ways partly because it brings us assurance and security and hope. It brings us comfort to know that no matter what we're facing in life, no matter how hard it gets, Jesus is Lord. We love that. To see Him in His humanity, however, That can be unsettling. Because that because the pictures that accompany his humanity 
are not nearly as majestic or awe-inspiring. To the contrary, to see Jesus in his humanity is to see him suffer. And because we don't like to suffer, we'd rather not see a suffering Christ. Behold the man, Pilate says. And yet, frankly, the man was not much to behold at that point. I don't want to diminish, not at all, I don't want to diminish Christ's deity, not in the least. To know that Jesus is God is essential to our understanding of Him. But church, we need to hear this. Knowing that Jesus is man as well, a human being like us, is equally vital. Why is the humanity of Christ vital to our understanding of Him? There are a number of reasons put forth in Scripture, but the most important one, the one to which all others point, is that if Jesus is not a man, then He cannot save us from our sins. And reconcile us to God. Among the many truths that emerge from Christ's crucifixion is the nature of the atonement and the doctrine of penal substitution. Penal refers to the penalty of sin, substitution to the fact that someone else paid the penalty. So in order for Jesus to substitute himself in our place, he had to become like us. And only after becoming like us could he pay the penalty that was ours. Sin's penalty is death, both physical and spiritual. It is eternal separation from God because sin itself is willful disobedience to God. The person who remains in their sins is separated from God forever. But God does not want this. He wants, rather, to enjoy us and us to enjoy Him. From creation itself, God designed the creator-creature relationship to be one of mutual enjoyment, where we gladly trust and obey Him as a child would with a loving father. But because our sins separate us from God, and because we continue breaking this trust, continue disobeying, if there's any hope of restoring this relation, it must come from God, not us. And this is the very reason that Jesus has come. Hebrews chapter 2 puts it like this. Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things. Again, in that same passage, it says Jesus had to be made like us in order to make propitiation for our sins. In other words, because we are made of flesh and blood, 
Because we are human, our Savior needed to be human as well. He needed to be like us in order to do for us what we could never do ourselves. It would not have been enough. Hear this. It would not have been enough for Jesus to die with a divine nature only. Because God is holy and thus can neither bear nor become sin, and because God cannot die. Yet Jesus did both. Though He is God, He bore our sins and actually became sin on the cross, and on the cross He died for sin, and this was made possible only because Jesus willingly surrendered His rights as God and willingly took upon Himself our human nature. Paul describes it this way in Philippians 2. Though he was in the form of God, Jesus did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself. By taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Now, becoming obedient to the point of death, that phrase means that Jesus, unlike us, trusted and obeyed God perfectly as a human being. And therefore, His death was not for His sins, because He never sinned, but for ours. This is why Christ's humanity is necessary for our salvation, for only a Savior who is at once fully divine and fully human can perfectly represent both sides. This is what makes His sacrifice efficacious and acceptable. This is the heart of penal substitution. And so this is a call reflect on the incarnation itself on the humanity of Jesus how then in our own personal reflections in other words as you process the reality of this how can we summarize what it means for us, for you. It means that you can be forgiven, made whole, and made right before God. If Jesus had not been a man, he could not have died in your place and paid for your sin. Consequently, you would have no means of forgiveness and would therefore remain broken and bound by sin always. If Jesus had not been a man, you could not be made right with God. A transaction was made at the cross that gets to the nature of imputation. Basically, imputation is the act of crediting something to someone that they otherwise would not receive. 
What happened then was that our sins were imputed or credited to Jesus so that His perfection and righteousness could be imputed or credited to us. 2 Corinthians 5.21 says, For our sake God made Him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in Him we might become the righteousness of God. Later in 2 Corinthians 8, Paul says, For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though He was rich, that is, divine and perfect, Yet for your sake he became poor. That is human and sin-bearing so that you, through his poverty, might become rich. That is made righteous in Christ before God. All this to emphasize what the humanity of Jesus means. It means that you can be free from all your garbage, all your baggage, all your wrongdoings. It means that by turning from your sins and placing trust in Christ, hear this, you will you will receive from Jesus not only a clean slate, but in fact, a slate that was never dirty. Because Jesus took your sins upon himself to give you his sinless perfection in trade. That's a good deal. means you can be forgiven made whole and made right before God number two it also means that you are known by God have you ever felt misunderstood of course you have maybe not even misunderstood but simply not understood at all You ever wondered if anyone really knows you, really knows you? Knows what you're going through? Knows what's going on in the private recesses of your heart? Some of you are facing great difficulty today. I know this. Some are battling doubt, fear, sense of hopelessness. Some are on guard 24-7 against despairing thoughts. Some of you are trying to keep it together or at least give the impression that you've got it together. I understand it. It's a protective measure. You're trying to protect yourself from the possibility that no one really knows you or cares To know you. 
And yet, thankfully, the humanity of Jesus Christ assures you that He knows and cares and that He is there to help. If Jesus had not been a man, He would not know by experience what it's like to be you. To be human. But because He lived as a man, He can identify more fully with with, with your humanness and with your varied human experiences. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, Hebrews 4.15 pledges, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are and yet without sin. And when it says in every respect, in every respect, it means just that, that Jesus knows precisely what it's like to be in your shoes in every conceivable way, albeit without sin. So with confidence we're exhorted, with confidence draw near to the throne of grace so that you may find mercy, receive mercy and grace in your time of need. The humanity of Jesus Christ means that you are are wonderfully known by God. Thirdly, it means that you are loved by God. If you want to see how much God loves you, if you ever or have ever questioned If God loves you, look no further than Jesus Christ. See Him there, standing beside Pilate and before the seething crowd, His flesh tattered and torn. See Him bearing His cross. See Him nailed to the cross. See and... See Him anguish and pain beyond the limits of our imagination. See and hear Him cry, My God, my God, why have You forsaken me? As the Eternal Father turns away from His beloved Son while Jesus bears Your sins for You. God had become a man. And in... And this, in these terrible moments, is what he looked like. This is how much you are loved. Jesus came for you. Lived for you. Died for you. Rose bodily from the dead for you. Ascended to heaven in bodily form to prepare a place for you. Gives the Holy Spirit to be with you as a guarantee of your heavenly inheritance. Prays for you from heaven, even now. Promises to return for you for anyone and everyone who who entrust themselves to His care, one day you will see Him face to face, not by faith, but by sight. 
And He will glorify you in the radiance of His own glory. And He will be with you in the presence of God with the full number of God's people forever. This is how much you are loved. Do you know this love? Will you receive this love? So many people know this love up here. But the question, my question is, will you receive this love? If you have already, do not forget how much you are loved. Whatever you're going through, be reminded again that you are a beloved child of God. And if you haven't yet received this love, again, I'm talking about not not up here, but here. If you haven't yet received this love, God's love made plain in the person of Jesus Christ. Receive it now by receiving Christ. You receive God's love by receiving Christ, and you receive Christ simply by submitting to Him. Just like the video we saw, the Gideon video we saw. Simply by saying, Jesus don't like what my life is without you. And I want you to take the reins of my life. Simply by turning from going your own way to go his way instead. The humanity of Jesus means that you can be forgiven made whole and made right before God, it means that you are wonderfully known by God. And it means that you are dearly loved by God. What manner of man is this? He is the God-man. Equally God and man at one and the same time. This is the mystery of the incarnation. Thus, The humanity of Christ is essential to our worship of Christ. Behold the man. Behold the man indeed. Amen. Once again, Father, we thank you for these moments where we've considered the man, Jesus, we've considered his unjust suffering, we've considered 
His very real, sometimes painfully real humanity. And we've considered the implications of the incarnation. Thank you for forgiveness that is full and freely offered through Christ who has stepped in to our place to pay the penalty for our sins. Thank you that we, by entrusting ourselves to Christ, are made whole, justified, just as if we'd never sinned, to enjoy full relationship with God Almighty. Thank you for this great reality that we are so wonderfully known by you, that no matter where we are in this world or what we're facing, you are with us and you know everything that's going on inside of us, every thought, every concern, every worry, every joy, every doubt, you know it all. And you invite us to come and receive from you this great love, this divine love, this Love beyond the limits of our imagination. Help us to know your love today. That we may glory in you and your grace and find strength and help in our times of need. Thank you for Jesus.